So today we're fortunate to have Quill Turk from the Medical University of South Carolina, as well as Mark Chimowitz, who is also part of the um, Department of Neuroscience at the Medical University of South Carolina. Quill is a corresponding author for the Editor's Choice article for the May issue of JNIS, uh, the ADAPT FAST study, a direct aspiration first pass technique for acute stroke thrombectomy, and Mark uh, wrote a, a commentary based on that article. Quill, can you tell me a little bit about the design of this study and um, maybe summarize some of the results for me? Yeah, we did the ADAPT FAST study, and, and basically the ADAPT, the ADAPT technique is, is a newer aspiration first and if aspiration alone does not work, then proceed and use that large bore aspiration catheter as a conduit to then use a stim retriever or any other device to uh, to deliver uh, right to the face of the clot to then do the thrombectomy. And this was a, a new technique that uh, that we came up, came up with, and also had several of our colleagues uh, at uh, collaborating institutions who were interested who were doing the, the the procedure and technique as well. And we felt, you know, that, that this was a, you know, basically a good example of how we think things should be done in the future where if new devices or new techniques are being used with current devices, that we should try to do them in a somewhat organized fashion. So, you know, we, we basically collaborated as a group um, without any industry sponsorship or anything else and said that we're going to collaborate and, and contribute data from all of our cases. And that's what we did initially and published our retrospective cases. And then we also organized ourselves during that time period as we were collecting that initial data um, to do a prospective study, um, you know, a registry type of, type of study just to get, to get data looking at all cases that were stroke cases using mechanical thrombectomy that were felt to be suitable for ADAPT. And that's basically how this study was done was we all collaborated together, put in all of our cases in a prospective fashion. And we looked at, you know, the big metrics that we think are important, which is um, were we able to to revascularize, you know, at an acceptable degree, which we think now is a ticking 2B or 3 or greater is what's what's going to be required. No longer is 2A acceptable. Um, we looked at time, which is another big metric. Um, we looked at downstream emboli or emboli to new territory. We looked at um, clinical outcomes, both uh, discharge and 90-day, uh, and wanted to make sure that we were doing at least as well as we were doing before. Okay. Um, and can you just summarize some of the results of the study then? We found that we were able to to uh, to, to, to basically uh, do the thrombectomy successfully in all the cases. Um, we found that we were successful with the aspiration component alone in, um, about 80% of the time. Um, in the cases that we were not successful with aspiration alone, we then used the stem retriever through the aspiration and did local aspiration at the clot while we were using a stem retriever. And with that addition, we were able to increase our success up to about 94%, making 2B and 3. We found that our times were much faster. We were able to do that and bring our times from when we didn't with stem retrievers before, we were, it would always take us about 50, 55 minutes or so to open cases. We were able to drop that down to about, on average, about 36 to 38 minutes to revascularize. And that revascularization time is from growing puncture to revascularization. And I think a big part of the reason for that is it's everything is very now very much cookbook. In other words, 
the techs and, and, and so forth have all the devices ready. The whole system is ready to go and in place. You don't have to kind of say, oh, I want this now, I want that now. It's all together and you know exactly what you're going to do. So that really tremendously helps to expedite and speed things up. Um, and everybody also anticipates and knows what's going on. Yeah, it seems that that's a, a, a huge advantage of the uh, technique is that you have, you know, a standard set of equipment, but through that equipment you can sort of do sort of a multi-modality approach um, to throw them back to me. Have you found any disadvantages or any problems with with the technique? It really hits for us on all the big things in that, you know, it, it's something that's very fast. It's something that's very easy. You know, I mean, the easiest thing we do is put a catheter up to the clot. It's when you start messing with all the devices that things um, can change. And we found that it's also very economical. In other words, it, it, you know, paying for just a catheter rather than having to um, add on additional devices really helps to drive our cost down. And I think the biggest thing is, you know, these catheters are now so flexible and trackable, they're painless. So that allows us to do these patients awake now. We're no longer stimulating them as we're pulling these devices through through the carotid siphon and so forth. So we're able to, to, to do these patients in a conscious sedation and uh, still be able to do them very quickly and safely. Great, great. Mark, thanks for agreeing to be on the call as well. You know, it was interesting to me. I mean, certainly, as Quill said, the... Um, Technique really seems to be an improvement on uh, revascularization rates and also time to revascularization. But yet, when the 90-day outcomes were tracked, they're, they're still around the 40 percentile mark. Do, do you have any insight into that, or what you think may be the, the barriers to uh, really improving, you know, 90-day outcome to greater percentages? So I'm not. You know, that is a point with the, that number at, uh, at 90 days or 40%, in large part because these patients were treated pretty late in the duration of the scheme year and also had substantial deficits. So it's, it's, it's actually not a bad outcome. Now, you might ask, well, if this was based on the number of imaging, which we typically do here, why isn't it better if we're only doing it in people who had viable tissue? Well, I mean, I think. The reality is that perfusion imaging still lacks specificity as a marker of durable tissue viability. Um, I think it's a little scientifically naive for us to think that it's just about blood flow. Um, stroke pathophysiology is complex. It's, it involves cellular, molecular, metabolic, electrophysiological, blood-brain barrier issues that, that you know, our current imaging doesn't identify. And so I really think we need better biomarkers and imaging markers of tissue viability to, to really know which patients truly have reversible tissue damage. That makes sense. So, Mark, you know, I, I, my impression is part of the improved uh, long-term outcomes may come from the um, post-procedural uh, management, you know, sort of subacutely in the NSU, or are there any, you know, sort of new advances on the horizon that you know of with respect to that? You know, issues of good blood pressure control, uh, decreasing reperfusion, hemorrhage risk, all of those things are important. I think prior to the procedure, I, you know, there's been some interest in the cardiac and the vascular world in using um, skinny preconditioning uh, just prior to the procedure where you, you blow up a blood pressure cuff in the arm and do it unilaterally. Some folks have done it bilaterally, and the remote effects of limb ischemia 
may have protective uh, effects on distal organs such as the brain. So um, there have been some randomized trials in endovascular disease for coronary disease that suggest that that may be protective. They aren't all positive in studies, but but I do think uh, that that's worth studying further in uh, endovascular disease for stroke. Uh, I actually know of some endovascular docs who are um, just doing this empirically now, but what we really need, obviously, good randomized studies to see whether uh, ischemic preconditioning just prior to the procedure might improve outcomes, too. I don't think that you know, neuroprotection therapies have really not panned out. Um, cooling is an option, but it's logistically complicated in the acute stroke setting. So I think ischemic preconditioning might be, is at this point, one of the most promising options to consider. Well, that makes sense. Um, Quill, I have to applaud you for the, the speed uh, or really decreasing the time to revascularization. Um, just in your own uh, shop, you know, are there other ways that you can, you know, maximize the uh, or minimize the time from onset to uh, recanalization? For example, do you, do you uh, foresee maybe in the future with cone beam techniques being able to, uh, you know, get perfusion data on the angio table and maybe uh, decreasing the extra CT step? The transition from, you know, the patient outcomes, which we just talked about, to this, I think, is, is kind of where all that comes down to patient selection. I think we clearly have matured the procedures enough to where we're now very reliably getting things open um, at, a, at a very high degree and also, I think, at a very high quality. Um, so I think, you know, we've, we've clearly matured the technical side. But I think, you know, really the the, the outcomes are going to lie in, in understanding the patient selection. And I think that's where we need to really identify how do we choose these correct patients. I'm personally a big believer in, 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 in CT uh, technology and, and using advanced imaging for, you know, uh, not only the CTA but also the perfusion imaging in large part because it's something that's widely available at all hospitals. And it's something that we, we do all the time. And, and for me personally, I have a, a lot of experience with it, you know, since my training through my, my career. And I think, you know, we, we've certainly done some initial uh, research with Siemens on the uh, flat panel uh, perfusion imaging. It's a very powerful tool and I think one that um, that will become viable, I think, in the near future. Uh, but there still is certainly work to be done. I mean, um, in Stuttgart, I believe, um, have done a lot of the initial perfusion work, uh, uh, Dr. Struther, Wisconsin has done a lot of the early animal validation of that as well and shown that, you know, with, with the newer, faster speeds that they can do with the uh, flat panel uh, uh, C-arms, they can obtain not only blood volume maps, but they can also obtain uh, blood flow and transit time maps as well. So in that perfusion data, you can then extrapolate or not extrapolate, but extract uh, the CTA uh, angiographic uh, data to understand what vessels are included. And also they can do that with the temporal resolution so you know uh, what the flow is, in other words, where the where the occlusion is and potentially uh, what collaterals are present. So I think, you know, there is a lot of uh, work being done on the non-invasive imaging side that, that can further help speed things up and maybe even potentially one day go, you know, just bypass the ER direct all the way in patients that, you know, have a, a large stroke scale, seem to have a high suspicion for large nasal occlusion, they can come straight to the angio suite and get these scans done right there on the table, and then if they're a candidate for this uh, procedure, then they can get uh, operated on immediately without the time delays of having a radiologist interpret it, get back to somebody 
patient gets transported from the ER up to the angiosuite and all these other steps that all build time in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there there's certainly, you know, ways that we can improve the system efficiency and uh, some of the ways that you uh, alluded to. You know, I know that the definition or the metric definition for successful recanalization, you know, we've sort of as a field guns to the standard of TIKI-3 uh, or TIKI-2B. Do you think that we should stay with that or... Do you, you know, I guess my question is, is there enough variability in the individual patient response to 2B recanalization? Uh, you know, what's your feeling? Should that remain as a metric for successful recanalization, or should we really just rely on TIKI-3 to be, you know, the definition of successful recanalization? Yeah, historically, all the trials, even up until this past year, TIKI-2A has been considered a success, and I think that is completely inappropriate. I think TIKI-2B, at a minimum, should be a success, and there certainly are, you know, some people that have even proposed doing a TIKI-2C, where um, a TIKI-2B being greater than 50% of the territory is revascularized, a TIKI-2C is greater than 90% of the territory is revascularized, and obviously TIKI-3 is, is everything is revascularized. I think it's hard to call something a failure when you've gotten everything open except for two or three very small, you know, M5, M6, very distal small branches open. I think it's hard to call that a failure, um, especially when you're dealing with a device that's opening up a large proximal vessel occlusion. So having a happy medium with something like a, practically speaking, I think a 2B and better is, is what we should be accepting currently, but I think we should be probably driving the field to accepting a, a TIKI 2C and considering that as the bar that we need to achieve reliably every time. Okay. Mark, you have a, a large experience with trial design. You know, what elements of a, a stroke trial would you like to see in the future? Well, I think as Quinn uh, and I both kind of discussed earlier, I think the key to success in showing in the vascular treatment works is going to be patient selection. And we discussed, um, I think the penumbral imaging is a kind of a good first step potentially, although there's a lot of debate now about whether we could just use some plain CT and get people up so fast without doing imaging. So I think that issue needs to be resolved. Uh, if we end up using more sophisticated imaging, obviously new biomarkers and imaging that can be done quickly to identify you know, cellular and molecular evidence of reliability, I think is going to be important. So those are all areas for future research. On the design side, you know, I think all of us in the field are looking forward to positive trials. And, and there is some potential concern in that regard because, you know, when, when you feel so badly you lose and want a positive trial, you've got to really be careful about design and make sure that you end up with a result that you can completely rely on. So one of the things I would like to see that I don't believe are being used in most of the ongoing trials is that in an unblinded trial such as this, the evaluation of 90 days, I think, should be videotaped and then sent for central adjudication because it's extremely difficult to blind the investigators of the site um, to the patient's treatment assignment. And I think by videotaping uh, the 90-day assessment and then sending it to central adjudicators, we'll get a much more reliable, unbiased view about the outcome. Some, some studies have done this already, but I but I would like to see it kind of uniform, uniformly applied to all 
trials because we certainly want to have, get a result that we can completely trust in the line. I'm not saying that we won't, we might not see that, but you know, you, you, you do want to design trials that you feel very confident in, you have everything you can possible to remove any conscious or even uh, subconscious bias. Mm-hmm. Well, well, that's very interesting. Thank you, guys. This has been a, a, a very uh, informative, at least for me and ho- hopefully for our readers as well, very informative uh, conversation. Do either one of you all have anything additional to add? No, I do think it's worth the readers also knowing about uh, the efforts that have been made by several groups, including us, but really spearheaded by the Helsinki group about uh, even with IDPPA decreasing the time from door to needle time, you know, some institutions now down to 20, 25 minutes from door to needle. And obviously that by doing that, you're also going to improve the, the door to uh, revascularization within the vascular treatment. So the, the systems really need to be put in place at each institution to really decrease the time to revascularization because that's still going to be the key issue. I mean, Crow and his group have done an amazing job by improving revascularization and speeding it up, but we still got to get the patient from symptom onset up to the angiogram suite in a short time. So that's going to require a lot of systems work by the different hospitals. Well, thanks to both um, Mark and Quill for spending time to talk with me uh, today, and I hope, um, uh, again, the readership gets a chance to to hear this and, and become informed uh, by some of the answers that I got. Thanks again, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Rob.